Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, still recording in my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. I have been uh, indefinitely banned, I guess would be the appropriate terminology, from the studio until Mike is convinced that I no longer have any communicable disease. And the criteria we're using for establishing that is that I have to do a full recording and send it to him uh, with me sounding, quote, normal, unquote, in his words. Once that time is, uh, Once that time arrives, which hopefully will be this episode, uh, he will green light me to again return to the studio. So we are back. This is going to be a a normal podcast. We will have a full discussion of criminal justice fuckery plus a law 140. It's going to be a long one. I have 21 pages of notes, which in the past has tracked to about two hours. We'll see how that goes. Um, so just kind of buckle in and get ready. A few podcast notes before we get started. Some of you have asked me why you cannot see episode 49 in your podcast apps of choice. And the reason why is that episode 49 is a patron only bonus episode that we uploaded onto Patreon. Uh, Patreon does have its own dedicated RSS feed if you happen to be one of our patrons, so you can load that in your podcast app and you will see those bonus episodes, but it does not show up on the main Fiscomall feed because we put that on a different website, basically. Uh, also, some of you had problems with the RSS feed updating properly on Overcast and a few other podcast apps. Uh, that should hopefully be fixed. Apparently, when we turned on the virtual private server back in January that I mentioned was supposed to help responsiveness, uh, half of our stuff ended up on one physical server, and then our SQL tables were on another, so it was causing some hellacious lag time. Uh, hopefully, that is fixed as well. So those are the podcast notes. Uh, the Law 140 for this episode and the back third is going to be on the overbreadth doctrine. We're going to give you an overview of that because that happens to relate to one of the news stories we're going to go over this week involving a case that I happen to have. It's good news. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. Uh, also, if you haven't already, please join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskemall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you want to leave us a comment, you can go to our website, Fiskemall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our patrons, you can join us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Fisk. That is Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. CK. Every dollar helps. We are halfway to our goal of having 150 patrons. Once I've got 150 patrons, we're going to start doing episodes twice a week so that hopefully you won't have these two hour long episodes anymore. So if you happen to want to join us, check out the page. We do have some bonus episodes there for your enjoyment. All right. In the political news, um, did y'all know we had a government shutdown again this past week? Uh, we apparently had a mini shutdown. It lasted for all of six hours. On Thursday night at midnight, the government shut down. And then by Friday morning, uh, they had a bill in front of Trump that he signed. Still no vote on DACA, the Dreamers. Um, it just The fact that there was a six-hour government shutdown is a reminder to me that our Congress critters are not serious about governing. This notion that we are running the most powerful country on earth via continuing resolution is disgraceful. Uh, also in political news, this has been a festive week for the White House when it comes to staff resigning. Rob Porter, who is the staff secretary to the White House, he's basically the right-hand man to General John Kelly, the chief of staff, uh, stepped down because apparently he's a wife beater. Actually, he beat two of his ex-wives. 
from one of the stories that we'll give you in the show notes. It says, quote, Porter's second wife, Jennifer Willoughby, told the UK Daily Mail that Porter called her a fucking bitch on their honeymoon and once pulled her naked out of the shower. Porter's first wife then came forward with additional harrowing allegations. Colby Holderness, who married Porter in 2009, told the Daily Mail that Porter punched her in the face and choked her, among other alleged abuses. The article included a photo of her with a black eye. Now, this is bad in large part because these types of things make people susceptible to blackmail. So Russians, the Chinese, other foreign adversaries of the country find government officials, find dirt on them, and then basically say, do my bidding, give me the secrets that I want, or I'm going to disclose to the world that you're engaged in these types of activities. And yet somehow this guy got admitted to the White House anyway, given a taxpayer-funded salary. Uh, And of course, John Kelly defended him. He actually issued a statement saying that Porter was, quote, a man of true integrity and honor and a, quote, trusted professional. Now, I told y'all John Kelly couldn't be trusted. All right, go back to episode 19, way back on July 31st. I told you he was a scumbag from the beginning, and he was not to be trusted, and he's kind of showing his true colors here. But then, as the the Porter stuff is going on, a second wife beater happened to resign. Uh, David Sorensen was one of Donald Trump's speechwriters. Turns out, as the uh, Porter story was gaining steam, it was disclosed that Sorensen, quote, had run over his ex-wife with a car, put out a cigarette on her hand, and thrown her into a wall. So this is those uh, Republican family values for you. So if you're a woman, just know the Trumpist GOP does not have your interests at heart. All right, let's get into some of the criminal justice news. We have a trio of appellate court decisions that we're going to give you in the show notes. The first one is out of the Sixth Circuit. Uh, It involves a case in Texas that started as a home robbery, later got merged into an FBI probe of a multi-state criminal enterprise originating in Michigan. Uh, That's RICO, for those of you that happen to follow Popat on Twitter and follow the RICO jokes that we all tend to make. Uh, In particular, the court has decided that the Fourth Amendment's requirement for specificity in a search warrant is really more just kind of a guideline. So the warrant that the police obtained in this particular case allowed them to obtain, quote, subscriber information, cell phone location data, business records, photographs, images, depictions, correspondence, notes, paper, ledgers, personal telephone and address books, voice messages, text messages, memoranda, telexes, facsimiles, or other documents in any form, printed or digital, which reflect reflect the receipt, purchase, transmission, and or communication of a crime or any other electronic, magnetic, optical, electrochemical, or high-speed data processing device performing logical arithmetic or storage functions, hard disk, drum, CD-ROM, or scanner, communication facilities directly relating to or operating in conjunction with such device, or any other files, deleted or not, involved in this or any other unlawful activities." So the main issue there is that that warrant allowed them to do a search looking for basically anything about any particular crime when they were searching a given cell phone. The individual in that particular case said, hey, this is kind of fucked up if you're searching based on a certain set of crimes and in the process you're going to basically charge me with anything else under the sun that you happen to find that's not uh, it's not appropriate. Well, the court in that particular case said, LOL, JK, it doesn't matter. Uh, What they said was, quote, even if we reached a contrary conclusion about the validity of these warrants, the court held that the warrants were valid, the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule would apply. This is not a case in which a simple glance at the warrant would reveal deficiencies glaring enough to make reliance on it unreasonable by a police officer. 
So just know that if you happen to live in any of the districts covered by the Sixth Circuit, even if a warrant is defective, it's probably going to be upheld anyway. Uh, out of the Ninth Circuit in California, uh, children facing deportation do not have a right to an attorney. It doesn't matter how young they are. Uh, this case is involving a 13-year-old Honduran boy who arrived to the country with his mother. They appeared in the immigration court without a lawyer and were not allowed to get one. Uh, and then from the, we're, we're going to give you the link to the opinion, but the part that was really outrageous about it was a comment from one of the Justice Department officials who said, quote, I have trained three-year-olds and four-year-olds in immigration law. You can do a fair hearing without an attorney. So we're going to give you the link to the uh, news story in the Hill as well as the opinion itself. Out of the Tenth Circuit, the uh, Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals has upheld a conviction against Jeffrey Allen Stevens, uh, who basically is a guy in Connecticut that was deliberately trolling the Tulsa Police Department website and Facebook page uh, after killer cop Shelby Fields summarily executed unarmed black man Terrence Crutcher back in 2016. From the story, uh, it says, quote, death threats sent by a Connecticut man following the 2016 fatal police shooting of Terrence Crutcher are not protected political speech and could be construed as actual threats, an appellate court ruled Tuesday. The 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the conviction and one-year federal prison sentence for Jeffrey Allen Stevens, who pleaded guilty January 6th to five counts of interstate communication with intent to injure. In pleading guilty, Stevens reserved his right to challenge his earlier request that a 10-count indictment against him be dismissed on First Amendment grounds. Now, there's a there's a key point in this particular case, and that is the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals is totally right that as the current jurisprudence exists on analyzing threats. Uh, they got that part right. And the fact that a threat is not protected First Amendment expression. The challenge I have with this opinion, and the reason why I disagree with the outcome, is that that analysis is rooted in what is called the reasonable person standard. And if you look at the facts of this particular case, how the actual Tulsa Police Department responded, there's no evidence that they actually took these threats seriously. There's no indication that they provided extra security to any of the officers who were threatened. There were no charges for anything like extortion, even though one of the grounds the Tenth Circuit used to convey that the threats were real was that they were extortionate, threatening to kill people if, for example, a judge didn't deny bond to Officer Fields. And yet, somehow, under the reasonable person standard in death threat jurisprudence, the court is holding that a reasonable person is somehow apparently more uptight than a police department when it comes to receiving death threats. So we'll give you that story and the court opinion as well. Uh, in general research news, actually, before we get into that, um, one of our clients is apparently on Reddit. I don't really use Reddit. I don't like the user interface. It's a bit too uh, chaotic for me. Uh, but someone on Twitter sent me a link to a guy who is asking questions about being charged with uh, drug possession and someone named Pharaoh Yugi, I don't know who that is, but says, quote, best place in NC to be is in Durham County, bruh. The cops here are total morons, plus they're underfunded and understaffed. Also, the best street pharma lawyer in NC is the guy named T. Greg Doucette, just by the way. So I don't know who this guy is, but I appreciate the props. And if y'all happen to see anything else about me on Reddit, let me know, because like I said, I don't go over there. Uh, out of BuzzFeed, Albert Samaha, I'm probably butchering his last name and I apologize if he's listening. Uh, he did a 50 state review of the law regarding police and whether they're allowed to rape you and then claim that you were asking for it. 
And it turns out that that's actually legal in 35 states. A police officer can rape someone in their custody and then claim that it was consensual. This was rooted in the story out of New York that we have covered several podcasts ago about the young lady who was arrested supposedly for drug possession, raped by two on-duty officers left on the side of the road. Then when she went to the hospital to report it, several NYPD thugs came by to try and pressure her into not pressing charges. Well, Samaha went through all 50 states and found that in a lot of these states, you're allowed to claim consent if you are a police officer who has raped someone in your custody. And I actually learned something in this particular case about North Carolina, uh, because in our case, you're allowed to claim consent for rape and sexual assault, but for the, uh, the prohibition on claiming consent is only for a lesser crime called sexual activity by a custodian. So, you know, rape and uh, sexual assault, class B and C felonies, the highest ones we've got aside from murder, sexual assault or sexual activity by a custodian is a class E felony, a much lower uh, offense. So in that one, you are not allowed to claim consent, but otherwise an officer can rape you and say that it's legal in 35 states in the country. So we'll give you a link to that. Uh, Jamie Calvin who was the reporter who helped break the uh, scandal involving the Chicago Police Department, their cover-up of the murder of Laquan McDonald. He's got a long read in The Intercept on the First Amendment and its application to holding the government accountable when they try and pressure reporters into disclosing their sources and some other stuff. We're going to give you a link to that. And then uh, Alex Tabarrok of Marginal Revolution goes through some of the contracting terms that police unions have managed to negotiate, uh, basically enabling their officers to commit crimes and avoid potential conviction or discipline. He's got several different snippets from different states. They're all outrageous. We're going to give you a link to all of them. But the one that stood out to me is from the Florida Police Bill of Rights, which reads in part, quote, the law enforcement officer or correctional officer under investigation must be informed of the nature of the investigation before any interrogation begins, and he or she must be informed of the names of all complainants. All identifiable witnesses shall be interviewed whenever possible prior to the beginning of the investigative interview of the accused officer. The complaint, all witness statements, including all other existing subject officer statements, and all other existing evidence, including but not limited to incident reports, GPS locator information, and audio or video recordings relating to the incident under investigation, must be provided to each officer who is the subject of the complaint before the beginning of any investigative interview of that officer." Just know, you don't get that type of benefit if you happen to be charged with a crime. You don't get access to all of that discovery before the police ask you questions. It's interesting to me that the police don't want the very tactics they use against you to ever be used against them. Uh, also, the Pew Research Center has some new data about crime in the United States. Most of it's stuff that we've already talked about. For example, crime is down dramatically since the 1980s and 90s. Uh, people think crime is worse than it actually is pretty much all the time. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Opinion surveys regularly find that Americans believe crime is up nationally, even when the data show it is down. In 17 Gallup surveys conducted since 1993, at least 6 in 10 Americans said there was more crime in the United States compared with the year before, despite the generally downward trend in national violent and property crime rates during much of that period. Pew Research Center surveys have found a similar pattern. In a survey in late 2016, 57% of registered voters said crime in the U.S. had gotten worse since 2008, even though BJS, that's the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and FBI data show that violent and property crime rates declined by double-digit percentages during that time span. 
Uh, also, they have some sobering information that most crimes, in fact, go unsolved. Uh, they say, quote, most of the crimes that are reported to police are not solved, at least using an FBI measure known as the clearance rate. That's the share of cases each year that are closed or cleared through an arrest, charging, and referral of a suspect for prosecution. In 2016, police nationwide cleared 46% of violent crimes that were reported to them. For property crimes, the national clearance rate was 18%. So keep in mind, this data that gets reported to the FBI and BGS, we've discussed before, is totally voluntary. There's no obligation for local or state departments to report this data. And out of the data they are reporting, you have less than half of violent crimes being solved and less than a fifth of property crimes being solved. And yet we pay exorbitant sums of money and have our rights violated routinely in exchange for it. Uh, in federal news, Attorney General Beauregard is still insisting to people that marijuana is, in fact, a gateway drug for opioid addiction. Uh, he was speaking to the Heritage Foundation, and we actually we have a clip this time. So here's a, uh, here's a clip of your Attorney General. My goal for 2018 is to see a further decline. We had a 7% decline last year in uh, uh, actual prescriptions of opioids. We think doctors are just prescribing too many. Oh, we're just describing too many. You just, sometimes you just need to take two and uh, buffering or something and go to go to bed. Uh, but not th these pills become so addictive. They uh, and the DEA said that a huge percentage of the heroin addiction starts with prescriptions. That may be an exaggerated number. They had it as high as eighty percent. We think a lot of this is starting with marijuana and other drugs, too, but we'll see what the facts show. But we need to reduce the prescription abuse and um, re hopefully reduce the addiction that's out there. Now, notice that he knows that what he's telling you is bullshit just by what he told you. A DE agent said that heroin addiction up to 80% or more of it starts with opioids. That was his actual words. But then in the next sentence, he says, we also think a lot of this is marijuana. Bullshit. He doesn't actually think that if 80% of it is starting with opioid addiction. But beyond that, there is no actual data that shows that this is the case, that marijuana is a gateway drug to opioid addiction. There's no studies on it. And in fact, there are studies that show the opposite, that being ha uh, given access to medicinal marijuana actually lowers the rate of opioid addiction because you don't have to be on the pills. You don't have to be on the pills that are naturally addicting. So that is, uh, that is your attorney general. He is still an idiot. Somehow he is still in office. I don't understand. But that's the guy in charge of our war on drugs. Uh, in Homeland Security news, also regarding the federal government, uh, classified documents relating to how to protect the Super Bowl from a potential anthrax threat were just randomly left on a fucking plane. From the story, it says, quote, the Department of Homeland Security documents critiquing the response to a simulated anthrax attack on Super Bowl Sunday were marked for official use only and important for national security. Recipients of the draft after action reports were told to keep them locked up after business hours and to shred them prior to discarding. They were admonished not to share their contents with anyone who lacked an operational need to know. But security surrounding the reports suffered an embarrassing breach. A CNN employee discovered copies of them, along with other sensitive DHS material, in the seat back pocket of a commercial plane. 
The reports were accompanied by the travel itinerary and boarding pass of the government scientist in charge of BioWatch, the DHS program that conducted the anthrax drills in preparation for Super Bowl 52 in Minneapolis. So all of these people have no fucking idea how to handle sensitive information regarding your security. That is your federal government in action. All right, in the state-by-state news, of course, we're going to start with Arizona because there's never a week that goes by that Arizona does not have something fucked up going on. Uh, ICE is set to deport 30-year-old Jesus Barones, uh, who was brought to the country when he was one year old, has been here for 29 years, and in addition, his five-year-old son has leukemia. Now, you would think you having a dying child would merit some form of relief from the government, but no, you would be wrong. He is going to be deported for the heinous, heinous crime of driving without a license. Uh, Also, we have a separate story regarding the inhumanity of our prison system in Arizona. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Currently, incarcerated women automatically get 12 free pads each month for their period. Unlike in other states, if they want tampons, they must buy them. Here's the fucked up part. If that's not enough, of course, you end up bleeding on your clothes. And the story continues, quote, If blood stained a prisoner's pants, she would be given a ticket for being out of dress code, which would result in her losing visitation rights, phone calls, and the ability to purchase store items, including tampons and pads. It's fucking ridiculous. The whole story is even worse. We will give you a link to that in the show notes. Uh, In California, there are a lot of big changes coming now that Proposition 64 has uh, gone into law that started January 1st. It was a new law enacted by California voters back in November that provides for basically reclassifying, dismissing, and expunging all weed charges for people who don't pose a threat to the public. So we've got a story in Business Insider we'll give you a link to where the San Francisco DA is basically going through all old weed cases going back to 1975 and just getting rid of them. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, the city's district attorney, George Gascon, said on Wednesday that the city would retroactively apply the new marijuana law, automatically expunging felony convictions going back to 1975. That is huge. That is one of the biggest changes in criminal justice you will see anywhere in the country if they actually follow through with that. Uh, Also, Oakland, California, starting a new program under the uh, initiative to basically help former weed convicts get into the weed dispensary business. From the Business Insider story, it says, quote, under Oakland's equity permit program, half of the licenses in the city will go to equity applicants who meet one of three qualifications. Those applicants make less than 80% of the median income in Oakland. The other options are applicants can prove they have previous marijuana convictions or live in one of the six neighborhoods the city has identified as having suffered a disproportionately higher number of of arrests related to marijuana while it was illegal. There's also a provision called the Incubator Program that lets regular applicants partner with equity applicants or at least commit to providing rent-free space to those equity applicants in order to boost their chances of scoring a valuable license. The program is designed both to facilitate networking between former convicts and potential investors, as well as keep potential applicants from going to other cities with less restrictive licensing policies. I mean, you got to keep in mind, the most skilled people at selling weed, we've spent 
decades, generations, locking them up and throwing away the key. So this is a huge change in California. Uh, But in a separate story, it's not all rainbows. The Los Angeles district attorney, Jackie Lacey, has said that she will not go through those old weed convictions and undo them. And instead, they're going to have to go through the court process that has been established rather than her office doing it on their own. From the story, says, quote, in a statement, Jackie Lacey said petitioning the courts through a process established by the law that legalized recreational pot would be faster for people seeking relief. Using that process means people who are most in need will move to the head of the line rather than wait for the DA's office to go through tens of thousands of case files. Now, the significance of that is that the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office prosecuted more people for violating marijuana laws than any other DA's office in the entire state of California. The office estimates there were 40,000 felony convictions involving marijuana just since 1993. It had no estimate for the number of misdemeanor convictions it handled because there's so many more. Uh, So we'll give you that story as well. Out of Sacramento, the UK Guardian has an expose on police actively working with neo-Nazis to identify and arrest counter-protesters. From the story, it says, quote, California police investigating a violent white nationalist event worked with white supremacists in an effort to identify counter-protesters and sought the prosecution of activists with anti-racist beliefs, court documents show. The records, which also showed officers expressing sympathy with white supremacists and trying to protect a neo-Nazi organizer's identity, were included in a court briefing from three anti-fascist activists who were charged with felonies after protesting at a Sacramento rally. It is shocking and really angering to see the level of collusion and the amount to which the police covered up for the Nazis, said Yvette Falarka, a Berkeley teacher and anti-fascist organizer charged with assault and rioting, where she was stabbed and bludgeoned in the head. Quote, the people who were victimized by the Nazis were then victimized again by the police and the district attorneys. So we'll give you a link to that story. In Conejo Valley, California, I'm probably, if I mispronounce that, apologies to my California listeners, uh, Tech Dirt has some analysis on a news report by the Ventura County Star that it, it's, it's so stupid. But essentially, a school board member named Mike Dunn Uh, decided that he was terribly offended when a community activist said that he was essentially illiterate, that he didn't read the books that he criticized. So rather than respond and address her criticisms, he sought out her employer and sent her employer an email threatening to smear the employer unless he told the woman to shut up. And there ended up being extended back and forth between the employer and the politician. And it's just so damn stupid. Like, we have so many people in positions of power who do not take their job seriously at all and have no business being in any power of any kind. But we will give you a link to that. Uh, Oh, I left this. I forgot one of the stories out of Los Angeles. So police shot and killed 16-year-old Anthony Weber, a black teen in Los Angeles, claiming that he was armed with a gun, uh, but magically they haven't found one. From the story, it says, quote, After Weber was fatally shot by a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy last Sunday, Law enforcement officials alleged he was armed at the time, but the gun they said he had has still not been found. On the night of the shooting, some people gathered near the scene in Westmont just after shots rang out. Officials from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department now say that it's possible one of those bystanders, which they estimated to be around 30 to 40 people, actually took the gun from the scene. So you, you got to think about how the narrative plays out here. That means either... These police were so utterly incompetent, they shot an unarmed kid, 
Or these police were so utterly incompetent that they could not secure a crime scene and allowed someone to abscond with evidence. Either way, they're totally fucking moronic and have no business being on the force. So that is out of California. Rest in peace, Anthony Weber. Uh, in Georgia, out of Rome, uh, Into Magazine has a long read on Ashley Diamond, who is a transgender woman who was sentenced to prison, where during her three-year stint, she was raped at least eight times. She was released early because of the abuse. She then sued the state for the constant attacks and won a settlement in that case. So in retaliation for the lawsuit, the police have been repeatedly pulling her over for minor traffic violations in turn, sending her back to prison because the traffic violation constituted an arrest and her getting arrested constituted a probation violation. So she's now in solitary confinement because she's in jail and they don't want to risk her getting raped so she doesn't sue again. So we'll give you a link to that story. It's very long and it's utterly fucking absurd. Out of Pike County, Georgia, Georgia State Patrol Sergeant Rodney Jeter uh, arrested a good Samaritan for saving a woman's life, basically. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, when Rick Rickerson rushed to help a woman trapped in her vehicle following a serious crash, the last thing he expected was to end up handcuffed in the back of the police car on his way to jail. But that's exactly what happened on a Pike County highway in Georgia. Rickerson was driving down Georgia 109 when he witnessed the car in front of him flip multiple times, trapping the woman inside. Rickerson, who spent 30 years as a firefighter, rising to the rank of battalion chief before he retired, knew he had to do something. He stopped his truck and rushed to her car. My training pretty much kicked in as soon as I witnessed the wreck, he recalled. You go into the mode of firefighter when you see this happen. He was joined by a few other people who witnessed the crash, and together they managed to pry Rebecca Buchanan from her crushed car. Rickerson cleared her airway and was able to help to start breathing. He performed CPR, basically. Well, that's when things went south. Quote, as Rickerson was rendering first aid, Georgia State Patrol Trooper Sergeant Rodney Jeter showed up and demanded that Rickerson move his truck, which was still in the middle of the highway with the keys in the ignition. So Rickerson basically said no, because he's performing CPR. If he stops, this woman is going to die. He offered to let the officer move his truck. He asked one of the bystanders to move his truck. The keys were the in, in the ignition. Someone could have moved it. And eventually that's what happened. One of the other witnesses moved his truck while he's still performing CPR. Well, once the woman was in the ambulance and stable, they ended up uh, arresting Rickerson for obstructing a police officer, contempt of cop, as we've mentioned previously. Uh, so those two stories are out of Georgia. In Illinois, we got a lot of stuff out of Chicago. Uh, the Cook County Jailers Union has locked down some pretty massive pay raises as part of its contract negotiation with the county. Uh, it's going to lead to taxpayers shelling out a lot of money. So the, uh, the deal includes $11.7 million for what is classified as, quote, new entitlements, including $8 million for automatic $1,000 a year roll call bonuses, whatever those are, $9 million for 2% wage hikes in fiscal year 2018 and fiscal year 2019, uh, $5 million for step increases in pay this year and next year, another $5 million for signing bonuses for all members upon the contract's approval, increased uniform allowances, and extra pay for members of special units. Preckwrinkle, who is the county manager or mayor, something along those lines, is running for a third term this year. Her sole challenger in the Democratic primary is Bob Fioretti, a former second ward alderman who is fourth in the five-candidate mayoral election of 2015. In a written statement Friday, Fioretti pointed to the tall stack of campaign cash 
the incumbent has gotten from the jail guards union and other Teamsters groups. The Teamsters have given the Preckwinkle for President Political Committee a total of $215,550, including $68,900 from the jail guards local union. You imagine what kind of what you can do with that much money in a local race? Good lord. Must be nice. Also out of Chicago, the Chicago Police Department unit that we reported last week had been robbing drug dealers and then reselling the drugs has now expanded from seven officers to at least 15 under investigation. From the story, it says, quote, A growing scandal associated with a former Chicago police tactical team accused of shaking down drug dealers and framing Southside residents now includes scrutiny of at least 15 active Chicago police officers. NBC5 has learned the 15 officers are now assigned to desk duty in a case which has already seen the convictions of 20 individuals overturned. The newest revelations came in the case of a man named Lionel White, who saw his case overturned in December of 2016, answering questions in a federal lawsuit stemming from that case, a lawyer for the city of Chicago identified 15 officers pulled from the street as a direct result of the state attorney's mass exoneration action last November. Another man who says he was framed by Watts' crew, Anthony McDaniels, has a petition pending before the Conviction Integrity Unit. As part of that case, attorney Joshua Tepfer filed a motion Friday identifying 23 more individuals who say they also were set up by Watts or officers under his command. Quote, Watts and his tactical team officers falsely arrested them, framed them, and falsified their police reports. The Cook County State's Attorney's Conviction Integrity Unit is currently reviewing each of these matters. Fun times in Chicago. Oh, we're not done. We have one more Chicago story. Uh, a Chicago Police Department officer has been put on paid vacation after he sexually assaulted a man he was guarding at a hospital. From that story, it says, quote, a Chicago police officer accused of sexually assaulting a male suspect he was guarding at a hospital has been stripped of his police powers pending an internal investigation. The Gresham District officer was on duty at the time of the alleged encounter, while the suspect was in custody at a city hospital. CPD spokesman Frank Giancamilli said to reporters on Sunday evening, quote, the allegations are being taken very seriously and the officer has been immediately suspended as detectives conduct an investigation to corroborate the allegations. Doesn't really qualify as an immediate suspension when you're also getting paid the entire time, but that's just me. So that is the news out of Illinois in Kentucky. Uh, anal rape is apparently humorous to the Kentucky State Police. So during the Super Bowl, the uh, State Police Twitter account tweeted, quote, enjoy watching Rob Gronkowski tight end play. But if you drink and drive, your tight end may end up in jail, along with a slow motion gif of a bar of soap hitting the floor. Of course, prison rape is not funny. It's actually a crime and a very serious issue in the country. So the police apologized, issuing a statement that says, quote, the Kentucky State Police apologizes for the inappropriate tweet that appeared on our Twitter feed earlier tonight. Making light of sexual assault is never acceptable, and we apologize for the distress this tweet caused, particularly to the victims of these heinous crimes. KSP is committed to protecting against sexual assault and fighting for justice for victims. This tweet, made by an individual employee, does not represent KSP or our mission. Of course, they didn't actually apologize until the media called them asking for a comment. Uh, out of Campbell County, this is like a, a real-life Pizzagate. It's crazy. So for those of you who are not familiar with this particular scandal, Pizzagate was this idiotic conspiracy theory that some pizzeria in Washington, D.C. was running a child sex trafficking ring out of its basement. Now, the fact that it didn't have a basement didn't actually matter to the people who believed that particular conspiracy, 
But the whole thing was supposedly run by Hillary Clinton and her advisors. And eventually, at some point, a guy from North Carolina actually went to the pizzeria with a gun, demanding to see the basement so he could free the children. Well, of course, that was all a myth. In the real-world version, it's actually Republicans that are doing the child sex trafficking. Uh, Former circuit court judge and Republican campaign chairman for President Trump's Kentucky campaign uh, has pleaded guilty to human trafficking and having sex with minors. The counts against circuit court judge Timothy Nolan provided terse descriptions of what Nolan was alleged to have done. In some instances, they started with him asking a minor to give her a back rub and engage in sexual conduct for money. Nolan paid some victims with heroin and painkillers in exchange for sex. At least one victim lived on his property in southern Campbell County. He threatened to evict her unless sex acts were performed. He threatened other victims with arrest, including telling one victim he'd call friends in the FBI and other law enforcement to arrest her. Nolan faced more than 100 years in prison on 28 felony charges, including four counts of human trafficking of a minor. Now, that's some egregious shit. That's not just having uh, sex with a kid underage. Like, human trafficking is a whole nother ball of cheese. Uh, The total number of victims covered by the 21 charges he pleaded to is 19, including several juveniles. Again, this is Republican family values in the age of Donald Trump. They apparently like to have sex with kids. Uh, Out of Maine in Portland, this isn't really a criminal justice story so much as it's a humorous uh, reason why people hate contract lawyers so much. Uh, So a missing Oxford comma has led to a $5 million settlement between a dairy company and delivery drivers. From the story, it says, quote, the class action lawsuit against Oakhurst Dairy that led to a memorable ruling highlighting the virtues of the Oxford comma has been settled for $5 million. The suit, filed in 2014, alleged the drivers for Oakhurst were eligible for overtime pay that they never received. The dairy, which in early 2014 was sold to a farmer's cooperative by the main family that had owned it for 93 years, argued that the wording of a state law meant the drivers weren't eligible for overtime pay, but the lack of a comma in the law ultimately tilted the suit in favor of the drivers. So that particular law said that you didn't get overtime if you were involved in, quote, the canning, comma, processing, comma, preserving, comma, freezing, comma, drying, comma, marketing, comma, storing, comma, packing for shipment or distribution of a handful of products. So the lack of a comma after the word shipment. So it's not packing for shipment, comma, or distribution of. It is packing for shipment or distribution of. Uh, The court basically said that the shipment and distribution pieces both related to the packing part and that the drivers who were engaged in the act of distributing but not the packing uh, were in fact eligible for overtime. So we'll give you a link to that story and the opinion. It's uh, Like I said, it's one of those things where I'm an avid Oxford comma user, and that's part of the reason why, so I don't get stuck in a situation like this. Uh, out of Maryland in Baltimore, fourth rule of Fisk, The Wire was a documentary. We have been talking at length about the corrupt gun traced task force federal trial that was still going on. Well, one of the detectives who pled guilty said on the witness stand during cross-examination that he actually used to steal money with Detective Sean Souter. Now, we've talked about Souter several times. He was the Baltimore Police Department officer who was shot and killed with his own gun the night before he was scheduled to testify to a federal grand jury about the other officers on the GTTF. His murder has still not been solved because we all know that someone else on the Baltimore Police Department killed him. Uh, But from the story... 
It says, quote, a convicted Baltimore police detective testified Monday in the Gun Trace Task Force trial that he used to steal money with Detective Sean Souter, the city homicide detective whose fatal shooting in November, one day before he was to have testified before a federal grand jury in the case, remains unsolved. The claim came on cross-examination of Detective Mamudo Gondo, who admitted stealing from people dating back to 2008. Defense attorney Christopher Nieto asked Gondo if he had told the FBI that he stole money when he worked with Souter and a squad of several other people. You take money, split it amongst yourselves, Nieto asked. Gondo agreed. We also had a testimony from James, James Kostopoulos, who is a new member of the Gun Trace Task Force. Uh, his sergeant, Wayne Jenkins, we talked about this guy several times, asked Kostopoulos to go for a ride. Uh, from the quote story, says, quote, Kostopoulos remembers Jenkins directing him to the back of his van on a side street and asking him what he thought about tracking high-value drug dealers and taking their money for themselves. Excuse my language. I said, no, that's a terrible fucking idea. Kostopoulos 27 testified Tuesday. You can't have a badge on your chest and do that. At the time, Kostopoulos said he thought Jenkins was testing whether he could be trusted around money. But a short time later, Jenkins transferred Kostopoulos out of the unit. If you weren't willing to steal, you got reassigned. So that's out of Maryland. In Missouri, in Independence, uh, this is really one of those things like similar to the Georgia case with the uh, Good Samaritan who got arrested, except this guy got shot. Uh, Independence Police Department shot an innocent and unarmed man who was complying with police while he was trying to protect his family from a gunman. From the story, it says, quote, When Mike Becker received the frantic call on Tuesday that a gunman was threatening his family at the nearby Dollar General, he said he immediately took off with a handgun. The Independence man ran to the store shortly before 6 p.m. and saw the gunman pounding on the glass door. Inside, his wife, four-year-old adopted daughter, and about 30 others were huddled terrified toward the back of the store. His wife hid the girl behind bags of dog food. Becker said he put his body between those inside and the gunman. Quote, the only thing in my mind was my baby and wife. There was no way the gunman was getting into that store. Well, this is where shit goes south. When police arrived minutes later, Becker dropped his handgun, raised his hands, and then an officer with a rifle shot him in the hip. Becker has not been charged, and the particular charges suspected by the department did not appear in a search of court records. Thomas said that Becker didn't resemble, Thomas is one of the people that actually called 911, said that Becker did not resemble the description that she heard another Dollar General patron give the police dispatcher. Becker is 31, heavy set, and was wearing a black jacket. The gunman was in his 50s, slender, and wearing a green jacket. How do you confuse green with black? Thomas asked. Becker said that rumors then spread through the community, where he has lived all his life, that he tried to rob the Dollar General. The police have been extremely tight-lipped about it, Becker said. That's what upsets me about how the Independence Police Department handled this situation. They could have cleared me pretty quickly, that I'm not a suspect at least. And then Thomas added, I understand as police you have to put your life on the line, but to take it into your own judgment, to shoot an innocent man when he didn't fit the description, it makes me angry. Welcome to policing in America. The police viewpoint really is never help anyone, ever. Or if you do, be prepared to get shot. Uh, out of St. Louis, The Intercept has a long read on the case of Bobby Bostick, who was sentenced to 241 years in prison back in 1997 for participating in an armed robbery that was actually carried out by one of his friends. He was an accomplice. Ended up facing 18 charges with uh, maximum punishments of 13 years apiece. 
Well, Judge Evelyn Baker now says that she, quote, hopes he gets out and would have handled it differently if she knew then what she knows now, which is absolutely nothing. Like, the facts are the exact same. Uh, The difference is that the Supreme Court has held that juveniles cannot be given life without parole. Um, The question is going to be, is that going to apply to Bostick's case? Because technically he wasn't given life. He was given 13-year sentences. He just happened to have been given 18 of them to be served consecutively. So in effect, it's the same thing, but we'll see if the Supreme Court treats it that way. Uh, This is also a reminder that if you're a judge, you have to be in control of your emotions all the time. You know, to have this judge be retired and now hopes that this kid that she sentenced to two centuries gets out, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. Uh, also in St. Louis, speaking of ridiculous, uh, Patrick John Owens, 29, is a white guy who attempted to rob black men Christopher and Jerry Tate, shot them. Well, then he called police and claimed that the Tates had tried to rob him and had the police arrest the brothers. From the story, it says, quote, Owens initially told police he was parked in the 1100 block of Lucas Avenue about 3.15 a.m. when two men approached and started a fight. He said they punched and kicked him, according to a police summary released at the time. He then told police he grabbed his gun and fired at the attackers who ran off, but somehow lost his gun in the encounter. Officers called to the scene saw two men running, police said in the summary released after the shooting. One of them was seen hiding a gun in a flower pot before stopping to talk to police. The other had gunshot wounds and was taken to a hospital for treatment. The gun found in the flower pot turned out to belong to Owens, police said. The court documents filed Wednesday back up the brother's version of the incident. The documents say what happened, based on what the brother said and surveillance video that was found, is that Tate, uh, were the Tates, the brothers, were getting out of a pickup when Owens approached and asked for a ride. Then he pulled a gun and said, give me your wallet. The brothers decided to take Owens down. They struggled with him. Owens fired. A bullet struck Christopher Tate in the hand and ricocheted into his face. I was on top of him when he shot me, Christopher Tate said. When he fired the gun, the bullet hit the bone in my hand and went through my right jaw. If I had not put my hand out, it probably would have blown my entire face off. After the gunfire, all three ran. The Tates tried to tell their story to police officers on bikes, Jerry Tate said, but they didn't listen to us at all. Christopher Tate was treated at a hospital. Jerry Tate was taken to jail. He was released a day later without charges while police investigated. Now, you got to think, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of implicit bias at play here, kind of the subtext, obviously. But the fact that a white guy could rob two black guys and get away with it, but for the fact there was surveillance video. Had there not been surveillance video, the black guys would be on trial and the white guy would be walking around scot-free. Uh, we're, in a, we're in a pretty fucked up situation with our policing here. So I'll give you a link to that story. Out of Montana, uh, Jordan Deardell Roberts was a legal secretary in the Montana Department of Labor. He was faced with a new obligation to help ICE track down people to deport, so he decided to resign. He had a little mini tweet storm on Twitter. Uh, He says, quote, I put in my two weeks notice. I work at Montana Department of Labor. There were going to be ICE subpoenas for information that would end up being used to hunt down and deport undocumented workers. It would have been my responsibility to prepare the information and hand them off to ICE. I refuse to aid in the breaking up of families. I refuse to just follow orders. 
People have asked why I'm doing this. If I have a child, I'm doing this because I have a child. I want to be able to look my child in the eye. So many people are waiting on the 2018 elections, but many people being targeted by this administration don't have that long. I'm drawing my line in the sand here. Cooperation with this regime is not acceptable. So we'll give you a link to his tweet storm and more details from there. Out of New York, in New York City, uh, an officer with the NYPD has testified that a mentally ill woman who was shot dead did not swing a bat at police as claimed. From the story, it says, quote, a police officer who saw a sergeant fatally shoot a mentally ill woman in her Bronx apartment testified on Monday that the woman never swung a baseball bat she held in her hands at the sergeant, as the sergeant later asserted. The officer, Camilla Rosario, was next to Sergeant Hugh Barry when he fired twice at Deborah Danner, 66, in her apartment back on October 18, 2016. Officer Rosario was the only one of the five officers present who had a clear view of the fatal encounter. At any point, did she swing? The lead prosecutor, Wanda Perez Maldonado, asked. No, the officer replied. At any point, did she try to hit Sergeant Barry in the head? No, said Officer Rosario. The question of whether Sergeant Barry had reason to fear for his life is at the heart of the defense, and the testimony of Officer Rosario, who is to be cross-examined on Tuesday, contradicted the opening statement from Sergeant Barry's lawyer, who said Mrs. Danner was swinging hard at the sergeant's head when he fired. You'll be shocked, I'm sure, to know that anyone in the NYPD would happen to lie. Uh, Out of North Carolina, we have a lot of stories in North Carolina this week. It's really strange. Well, first, the uh, the North Carolina State Highway Patrol spends tens of thousands of dollars in expenses for deputies who use state-owned vehicles to commute way outside of the realm that they're supposed to be commuting. Uh, and in particular, when one of the reporters started asking questions, he got attacked physically by the commander of the Highway Patrol. From the story, it says, quote, a 2017 audit found several state troopers were driving more than 100 miles on their commute, even though agency policy prohibits anyone from living more than 20 miles from their duty station. WBTV reported at least one of the people Highway Patrol Commander Glenn McNeil later gave an exemption to has an even longer commute. Captain James Wingo, who lives in Asheville, but works nearly 250 miles away in Raleigh. According to WBTV, Wingo justified his extensive travel in his state-owned vehicle by saying he makes traffic stops and helps respond to wrecks while on his commute. But public records show it's been almost three years since he last issued a ticket in any of the counties he drives on or near his commute. As Nick Oxner, the reporter on the story, is asking questions of McNeil, this is me kind of paraphrasing, by the way, you see McNeil push Oxner out of the way so that McNeil can get into an elevator and then shoves Oxner back to block him from getting into the elevator with him before Oxner points out that it's a public elevator and the deputy needs to not have his hands on his chest. Uh, so that is the State Highway Patrol out of Durham. We have a lot of stories out of Durham. Uh, Sheriff's Deputy Ryan LaDuke, a six-year veteran of the force, has been charged with DWI after he crashed his patrol car into a tractor trailer. Now, this is a third rule of Fisk moment. There are no new stories, only new names and jurisdictions, because I actually thought we had reported on this already, because we had a story back in September of a Durham officer crashing his car into a tractor trailer. Turns out it's a different officer. So the September story was someone with Durham police. This guy's with the Durham County Sheriff's Office. 
Uh, also, in the same week, Sheriff's Deputy Joshua Holland has also been charged with DWI after he was pulled over in his personal vehicle driving 101 miles an hour in a 65-mile-an-hour zone. I don't know what the fuck is going on at the Durham County Sheriff's Office, but it's time for a change in leadership so that we can have people actually hold these folks accountable. Uh, also in Durham, all of the weapons charges have been dismissed against anti-Klan protesters who showed up at a rally. Uh, if you recall back in August, I think it's episode 23, where we went through the details of the Klan rally that was supposed to happen and then did not uh, and then there was an anti-Klan protest that followed. Well, several folks, including one of my clients, were later charged with having a weapon at the demonstration. The only people charged happened to be the anti-racists. So we actually have a glossy picture of a Nazi giving a uh, Heil Hitler salute. And there's another picture where he's got a big-ass knife on his body. Uh, he was never arrested for anything, even though the statute that folks were charged under prohibits them from having deadly weapons in or around a uh, parade or demonstration. But we're going to talk more about that story in the Law 140. Just know that the case against my client was dismissed, along with the case against several other folks as well. Uh, and then also in Durham, Indie Week has a long read on our bail system and how thoroughly fucked up it is. Uh, so basically, about a quarter, give or take, of the folks in Durham County's jail on any given day are held on what we would consider a low bond. So a bond of $5,000 or less, which would mean that you would pay $500 to $750 to a bail bondsman to get out. From the story, it says, quote, Studies across the country have shown that the bail system has the biggest impact on the poor and people of color, influencing the outcomes of their cases all the way to sentencing. Defendants held before the trial, rather than released, are more likely to plead guilty, be convicted, receive a prison sentence, and face longer sentences. And they've got hyperlinks for each of those particular clauses. Uh, one study of more than 30,000 cases across the country found that black defendants were 66% more likely and Hispanic defendants were 91% more likely to be detained pre-trial than white defendants. This time in jail can affect their employment, bills, and child custody. Inequities in Durham's system have been known for at least 30 years. Local judges responding to critical media reports commissioned researchers from UNC Chapel Hill's Institute of Government to study the issue. The 1987 report on more than 900 cases found that while black people were assigned lower secured bonds than their white counterparts, they were more likely to be given secured bonds in the first place, were less likely to be released pre-trial, and spent more time in detention. So if you're not familiar with bonds, we've talked about them in a prior Law 140, but a secured bond basically means that, well, let me do it in reverse. An unsecured bond means you just promise to show up to court. It's essentially a written promise to appear, and if you skip court, the government has the authority to uh, get a civil judgment against you for the unsecured bond amount. A secured bond means that that amount has to be paid in full. And what people typically do is they will find a bail bondsman, pay them a 10 or 15%, what's essentially called an insurance fee that you don't get back. Then the bail bondsman posts the remaining amount. And if you miss court, the bail bondsman then tracks you down. So shows like Dog the Bounty Hunter, that's essentially what they're doing. They're finding people who have skipped court because the bail bondsman is on the hook for all of that money. Uh, so that's all of Durham. And then in Rowan County, a, a sheriff's deputy from a neighboring county has been arrested for robbing a bank. From the story, it says, quote, Jeff Athey is accused of robbing the F&M Bank on West Main Street in Rockwell with a semi-automatic handgun Tuesday afternoon. 
Davidson County Sheriff David Grease said he was notified that Athey was arrested and charged in the robbery. That's all the story has at the time, but apparently in Davidson County, we just have sheriff's deputies going off robbing banks willy-nilly. That is everything from North Carolina. Over in Ohio, in Youngstown, Mayor Adi lived in America for 40 years. His wife is a citizen. He has four daughters who are all citizens. He owns several businesses in Youngstown and is described as a pillar of the community. Uh, but Donald Trump and ICE deported him anyway, sending him to Jordan, where he hadn't been in nearly a half century. He hadn't committed any crime at all. There is no allegation that he committed a crime. He had actually had lawful permanent resident status. That's called having a green card. But he went to Brazil briefly, and when he came back, they took that LPR status away. And then when he applied to get it again, he was denied. So he's stayed here for the past 40 years, checking in with ICE periodically and and being told essentially he's not a deportation risk because he hasn't committed any crimes. Well, Donald Trump said, fuck you, and put him on a plane to Amman, Jordan. Uh, Out of Oklahoma in Bartlesville, Bartlesville. Uh, Police shot and killed a 72-year-old woman who was woken up from sleeping as the police broke in. From the Story and Reason magazine, it says, quote, Police officers in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, killed a 72-year-old woman during a drug raid on her home. According to her 50-year-old son, who was arrested on charges during the raid, Geraldine Townsend was sleeping when police entered. She woke up, grabbed a pellet gun, and shot at the cops. One of the cops shot back and killed her. Two of the officers suffered minor injuries. Townsend was transported to the hospital where she died from a gunshot wound to her chest. You got to imagine how terrifying that is if you're a 72 year old woman. You're asleep. You hear people breaking in downstairs. You don't know who they are. You grab a gun to defend yourself, and instead the police blow you away. That's, uh, that's how we do law enforcement in this country. Uh, in Oklahoma City, You'll hear a third rule of Fisk reference in this one as well. A federal judge has given a woman a shorter prison sentence in exchange for her getting sterilized. The woman voluntarily, and I'm putting that in air quotes, the woman voluntarily underwent the medical procedure in November after Oklahoma City federal judge Stephen Friot suggested it in a scheduling order. He wrote that he would consider at sentencing medical evidence the woman had undergone a sterilization procedure, quote, if and only if she chooses, again, I'm putting that in air quotes, to do so. She will receive a shorter sentence because she made that decision, Friot said before announcing her punishment this past week. Friot also defended his sterilization suggestion, saying the U.S. Supreme Court, quote, has yet to recognize a constitutional right to bring crack or methamphetamine-addicted babies into this world. Now, if you recall our Law 140 on how judges play games with their word choice and the whole notion of strict versus loose construction, that's how that all factors in, he's right. The Supreme Court has not recognized a constitutional right to, quote, bring crack or methamphetamine-addicted babies into this world. What they have recognized is the 14th fucking amendment to the United States Constitution requiring that people be given the equal treatment of the laws. He's not sterilizing men. So having women be coerced into being sterilized in exchange for a nominally reduced sentence violates the Constitution. So you might remember, this is a similar court-run eugenics program that was running out of White County, Tennessee, that we talked about way back in July, back, I think it's episode 17. So give that one a listen. That's the third rule of Fisk in action again. There are no new stories, only new names and jurisdictions. In Pennsylvania, in McKean County, 
This is a, uh, we will call this a man bites dog story. So in journalism, you have a lot of dog bites man stories that no one pays attention to because they're mundane. This is man bites dog in reverse. Uh, a deputy, Colin Meeker, has been suspended because he trespassed on private property of a local Nazi in order to take down his Nazi flag. From the story, it says, quote, Daniel Burnside, the Pennsylvania director of the neo-Nazi National Socialist Movement, said that a neighbor spotted Meeker get out of his sheriff's department car and enter Burnside's property back on January 21st. Meeker then climbed over a block safety wall on the side of the road, went about 15 feet into the property, and took down a flag from a pole that had a Nazi swastika on it, along with the skull and crossbones and the insignia for the SS, Adolf Hitler's paramilitary group. You know, I, I don't know how I feel about that one. Like, I don't like the idea of police trespassing on my property, but I also have a hard time feeling sympathy for Nazis. So, I don't know. That's in Pennsylvania, out of Tennessee. In Memphis, the Memphis Police Department left a dead body in an impounded van for nearly two months. From the story, it says, quote, Pablo was shot four times on December 18th. There's no last name because he might get deported. Uh, he spent more than a month in Regional 1 Hospital and was discharged two weeks ago. It's kind of a shock for me. I still can't believe what happened, said Pablo. But Pablo wasn't shocked by his own wounds. He's shocked because when he went to pick up his van Monday, his family discovered a dead body. It was one of the men with Pablo at a local apartment complex when they were shot on December 18th. The guys, the, the body has been in there for almost two months. And the police just apparently didn't bother to check the vehicle to see if there was anyone else in there. This guy could have been bleeding out and potentially able to be saved, and police never even know it. So he died in the van and was left in the van to rot for the better part of two months, and no one even noticed. Uh, out of White County, uh, we mentioned they ran the eugenics program earlier. First rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, Sheriff Audie Shoup has been caught on body cam, making it clear that, quote, I love this shit, after he ordered his deputies to kill a man. A Tennessee sheriff is being sued for using excessive force after he was recorded boasting he had told officers to shoot a man rather than risk damaging police cars by ramming him off of the road. They said we're ramming him, Sheriff Adi Shoup of White County said on tape in the aftermath of the killing of suspect Michael Dial. I said, don't ram him, shoot him. Fuck that shit. Ain't gonna tear up my cars. Shoup arrived on the scene shortly after police had shot Dial at the conclusion of a low-speed chase, clearly upset he had missed the excitement. I love this shit, Shoup said, apparently unaware that his comments were being picked up by another deputy's body-worn camera. God, I tell you what, I thrive on it. If they don't think I'll give the damn order to kill that motherfucker, they're full of shit. Take him out. I'm here on the wrong damn end of the county. So that is in Tennessee, in White County. In Texas, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals has ruled that clean cars are not, in fact, grounds for a traffic stop. From the story, it says, quote, Tidy motorists are unusual enough on some Texas roads that they draw the attention of at least one state trooper. In a January 24th ruling, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals went out of its way to overturn the dubious January 26th, 2014 traffic stop of Jose Luis Cortez, a fastidious driver behind the wheel of a late model minivan. The pristine vehicle drew the eye of trooper Gerald Snellgrews, who has a habit of stopping clean cars. This is an actual quote. Has a habit of stopping clean cars because he believes they are more likely to be carrying drugs or other contraband. 
During the Cortez trial, Potter County Judge Douglas Woodburn double-checked to make sure he was actually hearing the trooper's testimony properly. So you're telling the court that because you see a van, it's clean, and it's got two people in it, those were indicators of potential criminal activity for you, the judge asked. Yes, sir, they are, Trooper Snellgrews replied. So using the fact the van was clean as his reasonable suspicion for the stop, uh, the trooper pulled up alongside of Cortez, and it, it somehow, and I don't really understand, realistically, I don't think it actually happened, but this is his claim. He claimed that Cortez drifted, and then his tires then touched what is called the fog line, so like that line along the right side of the road that is there to make sure you don't run off of it. Uh, well, the Court of Appeals said that the clean car was not reasonable suspicion, and then they continued saying, quote, even a driver who is sober, alert, and careful may occasionally drift within their lane only because the roadway surface is not perfectly smooth, Judge Burt Richardson wrote for the three-judge criminal appeals panel. Moreover, drivers are not able to see if their tires are touching the fog line. They are likely to veer over at some point and touch the fog line alongside the roadway without being aware they have done so. We have kicked the can down the road long enough. It is time that we dispose of the core issue here, which is whether, under the totality of these circumstances, the trooper had an objectively reasonable basis to stop Cortez's vehicle. We hold that he did not. Also out of Texas, in Hidalgo County, uh, District Judge Rodolfo Delgado has been arrested and charged with accepting bribes in exchange for influencing case outcomes. From the story, it says, quote, Federal investigators allege that Delgado, 64, accepted three bribes between November 2016 and January of 2018 in exchange for favorable judicial consideration on cases pending in the 93rd State District Court where he presides. The criminal complaint against Delgado is limited in its scope, referring only to three alleged instances of bribery. But in an affidavit that was presented with the complaint, an FBI investigator said he uncovered more information about the district judge over the course of his investigation. While the investigation into Delgado began in November 2016, a licensed Texas attorney, referred to as a confidential human source, alleges that bribes made in cash and other items of value started as far back as 2008. So, folks, that is the state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery this week. Every now and then we do cover cases in other countries. And this isn't a case per se, but it's in Zhengzhou, China, where the railway police are now using basically facial recognition glasses that are then connected to police databases so they can use augmented reality to identify you, pick you out in a crowd, and see if you have any warrants out for your arrest. It is creepy as fuck. My Mandarin is not very good, so I'm going to give you a link to the Twitter thing that has the link to the QQ.com article, and hopefully those of you that read Chinese better than me can let me know if I've got any of it wrong, but the pieces of it that I was able to decipher, uh, this seems to be like how the railway police are doing things from now on, and it's, it's scary freaky. Uh, so that's going to do it for the criminal justice fuckery. Let's go ahead and dive into our Law 140 on the Overbreadth Doctrine. All 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for sticking with us through the break. As I mentioned in the state-by-state news, one of my clients had attended the anti-Klan protest back during the summer. And at the time when he went, he was armed with a handgun. He had a 9mm pistol that stayed in its holster the entire time. Because if you'll remember from that timeline when this all happened, just the week prior, there had been the white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where a white nationalist ran over and killed Heather Heyer. So several of the folks attending the counter-protest in Durham a week later had weapons. One of those guys was a professor at UNC and Duke, a guy named Dwayne Dixon, very nice. He showed up with an AR-15. Uh, my client, Elijah Pryor, had a 9mm, and there were other folks with weapons there as well because, one, there weren't that many police around, and two, if someone tried to run somebody over, these folks wanted to you know, have the ability to defend themselves and defend the other people that were present. Well, of course, that is unacceptable to the law enforcement community here in Durham. So the Durham County Sheriff's Office, led by Sheriff Mike Andrews, who I've criticized at length on multiple occasions because it is well-deserved, decided that he would have his deputies uh, issue arrest warrants for these folks who had guns and charge them with two sets of crimes. One is a common law offense called going armed to the terror of the public. Uh, that one made no sense because to actually be convicted of that, you have to have the intent to terrorize people and trying to defend yourself is not trying to terrorize others. Uh, the other was a violation of a state statute that prohibited having weapons at demonstrations. And the uh, the basis for this was actually the what we call the Greensboro Massacre of 1979. So back in 79, the communists in Greensboro were having a, a what they call a death to the Klan march. And that ended up becoming a shootout between the communists, the Klan, and local Nazis. Uh, and found out after the fact, actually, that the Greensboro police had coordinated with the Klan and the Nazis to allow and enable that violence to take place. Uh, four members of the Communist Workers' Party and one other person were all killed. Eleven demonstrators and one Klansman were wounded. Uh, every Klansman was prosecuted uh, and was acquitted. And then there was a second federal trial where they were acquitted as well. So no one was held responsible for this. So the, uh, the General Assembly, of course, passes laws when shit like this happens. And the second rule of Fisk, when you're looking at something that's going on, you have to start at the source. The law that they adopted in 1981 says, quote, it shall be unlawful for any person participating in, affiliated with, or present as a spectator at any parade, funeral procession, picket line, or demonstration upon any private health care facility or upon any public place owned or under the control of the state or any of its political subdivisions to willfully or intentionally possess or have immediate access to any dangerous weapon. Violation of this subsection shall be a Class 1 misdemeanor. It shall be presumed that any rifle or gun carried on a rack in a pickup truck at a holiday parade or in a funeral procession does not violate the terms of this act. So the question before the attorneys for Mr. Dixon and myself, the attorney for Mr. Pryor and several of the others, is does that statute actually apply? Because there's this concept... In, it's mostly in First Amendment jurisprudence, but it could theoretically apply to anything uh, called overbreadth, the, a law that is overbroad. So in determining this, there are a couple pieces that you have to look at. So first is, of course, the, the text of the amendments themselves. So 
the First Amendment, we've talked about it before, says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, that one is important, or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble, that one is important, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And then the Second Amendment, which we don't talk about much here, uh, says, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, it's worth noting, this is for the United States Constitution. This is separate from the North Carolina State Constitution, which also has clauses protecting the freedom of speech, the freedom of assembly, and the freedom to bear arms. We're not going to get into those, though, because we didn't have to get into them for my particular case. So the, the overbreadth doctrine has its origins in First Amendment law, this notion that a statute by the Congress abridges the right to free speech, and in the midst of trying to prohibit something that is allowed to be prohibited, in the process, it also prohibits stuff that is perfectly constitutional that you're allowed to say. So you'll often see overbreadth uh, arguments made alongside arguments about vagueness. So it's common for a vague law to cover, criminalize more things than is allowed because the terms of the law itself are vague. But they're two separate things. A law can be vague, but not overbroad. It would still be invalid because a vague law is not valid either. Uh, but you can also have a law that is overbroad, but perfectly clear in what it's attempting to criminalize. So the notion of what the overbreadth doctrine was, was actually first created, if you will, uh, in a 1970 law review note called the First Amendment Overbreadth Doctrine, written by a Harvard Law Review student. It's become the second most cited law review article of all time in all of history, uh, by a guy named Louis Sargentich. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm probably screwing up that name realistically. But while he was a law student, what he did was he looked at the Supreme Court's approach to dealing with statutes that burdened First Amendment expression. And he noted that the court applied what he characterized as a restrained approach of as-applied challenges, basically saying that the statute itself is constitutional normally, but as applied to one particular defendant in one particular set of circumstances, that defendant's rights were violated. So that is the default. That is the baseline for most uh, statutory attacks in general, is the court will take an as-applied approach, assuming the law is valid, and seeing if it violated the rights of a particular defendant. Well, the second approach holds that the entire law itself is invalid because on its face, the law prohibits a broad swath of totally legal speech. At the same time, it prohibits other speech. So that's where the overbreadth comes from. Uh, so the note by this particular law student was actually explicitly cited by the United States Supreme Court just three years later in the case of Broderick versus Oklahoma. So it was a five to four decision in 1973. The opinion was written by Justice Byron White, and it involved an Oklahoma statute that prohibited certain government employees 
from engaging in political activity. It's very similar to the Federal Hatch Act, essentially. Uh, from the opinion, it says, quote, Paragraph 6 provides that no employee in the classified service shall directly or indirectly solicit, receive, or in any manner be concerned in soliciting or receiving any assessment or contribution for any political organization, candidacy, or other political purpose. Paragraph 7 provides that no such employee shall be a member of any national, state, or local committee of a political party, or an officer or member of a committee of a partisan political club, or a candidate for nomination or election to any paid public office. That paragraph further prohibits such employees from taking part in the management or affairs of any political party or in any political campaign, except to exercise his right as a citizen privately to express his opinion and to cast his vote. So basically, several employees filed suit challenging this statute, claiming that it was overbroad, that it prohibited too much stuff, violated their right to speak and to assemble. Well, the court upheld the act, and it was very hostile to this notion of the overbreadth doctrine in its entirety. And what Justice White writes in the majority opinion is, quote, "...embedded in the traditional rules governing constitutional adjudication." is the principle that a person to whom a statute may constitutionally be applied will not be heard to challenge that statute on the ground that it may conceivably be applied unconstitutionally to others, in other situations not before the court. A closely related principle is that constitutional rights are personal and may not be asserted vicariously. These principles rest on more than the fussiness of judges. They reflect the conviction that under our constitutional system, courts are not roving commissions assigned to pass judgment on the validity of the nation's laws. To put the matter another way, particularly where conduct and not merely speech is involved, we believe that the overbreadth of a statute must not only be real, but substantial as well, judged in relation to the statute's plainly legitimate sweep. It is our view that the law in issue in this case is not substantially overbroad, and that whatever overbreadth may exist should be cured through case-by-case -case analysis of the fact situations to which its sanctions assertedly may not be applied. So this is still good law in a sense. So the case has never been overturned. It's frequently cited. The explanation of substantial overbreadth is incorporated a lot. But what you see is the court is no longer as uh, hesitant to declare a law invalid for overbreadth. Uh, what it constitutes a substantial uh, overreach, essentially, um, is it kind of goes back to the whole judges playing games with their word choice. What is substantial to you might not be substantial to me. We just declare it substantial because we want that to be the particular outcome. Uh, so for the modern application of the overbreadth doctrine, one of the leading cases is Ashcroft versus the Free Speech Coalition, which was a 2002 opinion relied, related to the uh, Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1996. So this was a 6-3 decision. And it involved child pornography related to um, basically using actors and actresses that looked really young, even though they were legally 18, and then also using computers to create um, pseudo-lifelike images of children engaged in sex acts. Well, Congress had enacted a law, the CPPA, 
that prohibited, quote, any visual depiction, including any photograph, film, video, picture, or computer or computer-generated image or picture that is or appears to be of a minor engaging in sexually explicit conduct. It also prohibited any sexually explicit image that was, quote, advertised, promoted, presented, described, or distributed in such a manner that conveys the impression it depicts a minor engaging in sexually explicit conduct. So those words appears to be and conveys the impression, those were very vague and potentially overbroad portions of the law. And what the Supreme Court held was that the CPPA was unconstitutional because of how much that it swept up. Uh, in the opinion, the court says, quote, the Constitution gives significant protection from overbroad laws that chill speech within the First Amendment's vast and privileged sphere. In sum, the law covers materials beyond the categories recognized in Ferber and Miller that relates to obscenity um, in particular. And the reasons the government offers in support of limiting the freedom of speech have no justification in our precedents or in the law of the First Amendment. The provision abridges the freedom to engage in a substantial amount of lawful speech. For this reason, it is overbroad and unconstitutional. The provision prohibits a sexually explicit film containing no youthful actors just because it is placed in a box suggesting a prohibited movie. Possession is a crime, even when the possessor knows the movie was mislabeled. The First Amendment requires a more precise restriction. For this reason, the CPPA is substantially overbroad and in violation of the First Amendment. So there again, you have the court quoting the substantial overbreadth uh, from the prior case, even though there's no real definition for what substantially overbroad is. They just kind of decree that it is so. Uh, so you also see, for example, in uh, Packingham versus North Carolina, which is a case just a few months ago. We talked about it back in episode 11, back on June 26th, where a North Carolina law had banned all uh, sex offenders from using any social media websites. A case actually was rooted here in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, the Durham police were trolling Facebook and noticed a registered sex offender had posted that he was grateful a parking ticket was dismissed. So instead of police trying to solve murders, they were just surfing Facebook looking for easy people to convict. Uh, well, the Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, held that that particular law was overbroad and had to be dismissed. So as you're applying it to the particular case with my client, Mr. Pryor, there's a sequence of things that as a defense attorney you have to go through to convince the judge that the case needed to be thrown out. So as I mentioned, overbreadth applies primarily to First Amendment law. That's where it was rooted. That's where it was developed. But intellectually, it can apply to anything. It can apply to any fundamental right. So that's the first piece. You have to show that the right to bear arms is a fundamental right, and of course it is now. Uh, in D.C. versus Heller, the Supreme Court decided that the Second Amendment text guaranteed a personal right to bear arms. And then in McDonald versus Chicago, the court held that it was a fundamental right encompassed by the 14th Amendment for purposes of the incorporation doctrine that we have talked about before. Uh, the court in McDonald said, quote, In sum, it is clear that the framers and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment counted the right to keep and bear arms among those fundamental rights necessary to our system of ordered liberty. So that's the first piece. Then you have to determine the level of scrutiny that applies to that particular fundamental right. So typically fundamental rights are subject to a strict scrutiny analysis. 
from an old Supreme Court case, San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez. What the court said was, quote, the court does not pick out particular human activities, characterize them as fundamental, and give them added protection. To the contrary, the court simply recognizes, as it must, an established constitutional right and gives to that right no less protection than the Constitution itself demands. In that particular case, the petitioners were arguing that there was a fundamental right to an education, and the Supreme Court said no, even though that's a very important right, it is not fundamental, and therefore it is not subject to a strict scrutiny analysis, any regulations relating to it. Uh, So that's the second piece. You have a fundamental right. The fundamental right in this particular case is subject to a strict scrutiny analysis. Well, then you have to convey to the court what that means. So regulations that are analyzed under strict scrutiny are presumptively invalid unless they are the least restrictive means used to achieve a compelling government interest. Uh, From the case of U.S. versus Playboy Entertainment Group, the court said, if a statute regulates constitutionally protected conduct, it must be narrowly tailored to promote a compelling government interest. If a less restrictive alternative would serve the government's purpose, the legislature must use that alternative. That case involved a requirement that uh, cable operators scramble any TV channels that would have adult content between the hours of 6 in the morning and 10 at night. And what the court said was that was not the least restrictive means because the law also provided that cable operators had to provide a mechanism for adults to block channels on their own. And therefore, you essentially had this additional restriction that made it overbroad. Uh, Also from the Packingham case, invalidating the North Carolina statute on social media prohibition, the court said, quote, This opinion should not be interpreted as barring a state from enacting more specific laws than the one at issue. Though the issue is not before the court, it can be assumed that the First Amendment permits a state to enact specific, narrowly tailored laws that prohibit a sex offender from engaging in conduct that often presages a sexual crime, like contacting a minor or using a website to gather information about a minor. Specific laws of that type must be the state's first resort to ward off the serious harm that sexual crimes inflict. So that's part three. You have to have this narrow tailoring, this least restrictive means to achieve a compelling governmental interest. Now, go back to the statute that we talked about, the statute that was at issue in my client's case. It prohibits any person participating in, affiliated with, or present as a spectator at a demonstration from having a weapon. Now, we'll assume for the sake of argument that there's a compelling government interest involved there. They want to make sure there's no violence against people attending these particular demonstrations. But look at the language. Participating in, okay, that's a given, affiliated with or present as a spectator at. So by me defending Elijah Pryor as his attorney, I became affiliated with this protest that I never attended. I'm violating that law simply by virtue of having my Smith & Wesson 9mm within reach of me as I'm recording this podcast because I'm still affiliated with that particular protest even though I wasn't there. Actually, I was. I was recording on the Periscope. Some of y'all might have saw it, but I wasn't armed at the time. Uh, But in addition, being present as a spectator at, what does that entail? If I'm walking down Main Street with my 9mm, you know, say I was walking Samson or something, when this protest happens to pass by me in earshot and I stop and look at it, I was engaged in totally legal conduct 
But by me choosing to watch what's going on, I've now made myself a spectator and I've now committed a crime that at the time I left my house with a gun, I was not committing. What do I do with the gun? Just throw it away somewhere in the middle of the roadway? You know, there's no indication on how that would all work. So when you take these things together, these are overbroad as it applies both to the Second Amendment, my right to bear arms in what is effectively an open carry state here in North Carolina, but it also abridges my First Amendment rights to affiliate with people that want to have an anti clan demonstration. If I want to give them advice on how to hold one, if I want to defend someone, if they happen to get arrested, if I want to go there myself, by affiliating with these folks, I would be running afoul of the law that creates what is called a chilling effect on my First Amendment rights. And therefore, it is not the least restrictive means for the government to achieve its intended effect. And therefore, it is overbroad and unconstitutional. So what happened in this particular case is that argument got made. I put together a, a four-point outline, basically following what I just told you, and uh, gave that to Scott Holmes, who was the attorney representing Dwayne Dixon. He made that argument to the judge. The judge ruled that the statute was unconstitutional. And as a result, the charges against Dixon were dismissed, as well as the charges against everyone else charged under that particular statute. So that is the quick overview on the overbreadth doctrine and how that works in practice. I hope you learned something with it. And with that, that brings to a close this particular episode of Fiscamall. On behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, who will be editing this remotely, but hopefully is satisfied enough that I am healthy and can return to the studio this next week, I hope all of you have a fantastic week ahead, and I will talk to you on Monday. <laughs>